Good morning. Welcome. Let me add my welcome to Andrew's welcome. My name is Jeremy. I'm, I'm one of the pastors here. I work full-time for the church. Um, and I may, may not have met all of you yet, so if we haven't met already, I, I'm looking forward to meeting you guys. I know a number of you have just arrived in the city. Um, so this morning, we're continuing on our series, um, our exile series. If you want to turn to uh, page 1,765 or 1,764 in the church Bibles, we're looking at the book of 1 Peter, um, Andrew started us off last week, and we're going to continue from where he left off. I'm going to read it to you, and then I'm going to pray for us. It's page 1,764, verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children... Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile." knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways, inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, uh, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times, that means when Jesus came to the earth, his ministry, his incarnation, for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, And all its glory like the flower of grass, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this this word is the good news that was preached to you. Let me pray. Lord, we want to be your people. We thank you for the words that you've given us. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the power of your word to shape us to mold us, to help us to become the people you've called us to be. Lord, would you help us to uh, walk in this holy way? Would you help us to be these holy exiles? Lord, help us to know what it looks like to be holy. Help us to know your power and strength to become the holy people of God that you've made us to be. Pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So last week, we started this series entitled Exiles, and we were looking at 1 Peter. This is Peter's letter to the church, believers scattered through different Roman provinces uh, based in what would now be considered modern Turkey. And we've entitled this uh, series Exiles, not least because Peter begins his letter by writing back in verse 1 to the elect exiles, to the chosen exiles. What does he mean by exiles? What does this theme really mean? Well, at at its very heart, it means that 
You, the people of God, if you're a Christian, you do not belong in this world. You're an alien in a foreign land, a stranger in a strange land. If you're a Christian, this world is not your home. Now, exiles typically describes geographical exiles, describes people who've, who've maybe born in one country and moved to another one and then find themselves in a foreign land. Of course, Christians aren't geographical exiles in that sense. Instead, their home ultimately is in heaven, is in the, is in the new creation when God's uh, reign comes fully in, um, over the whole earth. And that is ultimately the Christian's home. They will really only be at home when Christ comes back to make his home on this earth. Until then, the Christians are in exile. They're, they've been uh, rescued, ransomed, liberated from slavery. Uh, and they're on the way to the promised land, on the way to the place where they will dwell with God for all eternity. But until then, they are in exile. You are in exile. But what does it look, what does it look like to be in exile? What does it mean to be in exile? Well, the essence of being in exile really is that you're different Think about some of you just arrived in London. You know what it's like. You come to this city and you feel like an outsider. There's different cultural norms. You're never quite sure when a British person says, uh, kind of, it's fine, for example, uh, that actually that means it's not fine. Or, or, or uh, maybe when a British person says, hi, nice to see you, like, that's actually really welcoming for our culture. So you've got to take it and understand it from what it's at, uh, for what it means. Um, or maybe some of you, you've come from quite similar cities. So maybe I want you to imagine going to a totally alien culture. You know, my friend went and uh, lived in Chad and, and, and doing, um, in, in Central Africa, uh, doing development projects there. And he was there for a number of years. And he said, he, he was there for, for a long time. He said, actually, he still felt like a, a, a profound level of being an outsider. Uh, the cultural difference was such, the language, the, the customs, the, the dress, the food, everything made him feel different. And you may feel that. Um, but that's what it really the essence of what it means to be an exile. It's to be an outsider, to be different to the people who you find yourself in amongst. But you say, well, what is the difference for Christians? It's not like we have different dress, we, we eat the same foods, we uh, wear the same clothes, we, 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 we look superficially very much like the people we're living around. Of course, the essence of that difference for Christians is the focus of what Peter is speaking to, holiness. Holiness, this distinctive holiness that Peter is calling you to, is the essence of what it means to be an exile in this land. Verse 16, that central instruction, be holy for I am holy. That is what it means to be an exile in this culture, is to wear, to live and inhabit that distinctive holiness. So Christians, wherever they find themselves... Where maybe even if they have lots of things superficially in common with the people around them, will stand out from the culture they're in because they're walking in this distinctive holiness. And this holiness will shape everything they do, their ethics, their character, their relationships, their whole lives. They will look unmistakably different from the people around them. I think this holiness, by the way, is even what uh, causes some of that friction that Andrew described last week. Or um, later on, Peter goes on to describe persecution. He describes how they will um, accuse you of being evildoers. The reason they're accusing, well, the reason why he's predicting, that, or why they, they are in this case, uh, accusing these Christians of being evildoers is because they're walking to a very different morality. They, they believe and think life is very different to the people around them such that the people around them can't understand and actually think what they're doing is evil. 
Think about if anyone ever said to you, you know, Christianity is so repressive in its sexual ethic, or, or Christians are so bigoted. In a sense, that's kind of what he's talking about here, that in some way they're going to persecute you and consider you evil because you're walking to a very different drumbeat. But this morning I want to unpack this distinctive holiness. I want to show you what Peter's calling to, and, and crucially I want to show you that it's possible. Why do you think, why is this important? Let me give you a few reasons. First of all, I think many of us do not have a clear understanding of holiness. We think of holiness like um, in our culture, if you say someone's holy, maybe often it carries connotations of kind of thinking that you're better than someone else, think, be kind of being holier than thou. Or it kind of carries connotations of being a, a slightly weird or, or just like super religious, like doing religious things all the time and kind of you're part of the holy club over there. So as a result, it means that none of us really aspire to holiness. I don't mean many people who say, I wake up in the morning and what I want to be is holy. And actually, if someone said that to you, you might think they're a little bit weird. So I think we need to understand what holiness is. Second of all, holiness feels impossible. Many of you, when you hear this calling to holiness, your heart will have sunk. Because the idea of being holy feels like an unobtainable ideal of the Christian life. You say, I've already failed to live up to this standard. I just, I've given up. Whether that means consciously or unconsciously, you've kind of given up trying to live this holy life. I want to show you not only that it's possible, but I also want to show you crucially that it's who you are, that you, if you're a Christian, are part of the holy people of God. I also want to show you that holiness is much more beautiful than you realize. If you're not a Christian, you may look at holiness and think, isn't it just some kind of uh, unhealthy, possibly repressive morality? And it looks kind of forced and wooden and doesn't feel like it leads to flourishing. Well, actually, holiness really, first and foremost, is a, a, a thing we use to describe the reality of who the living God is, that he's the holy God, that he's perfect in righteousness, that he's pure. Actually, holiness is used to describe God first before it even is used to describe people. We are only holy because we become like him. Holiness is learning to image the holy God. And when you think that holiness is Christ-likeness, holiness is imaging the person of Christ, we think Christ is the most beautiful man who ever lived. And so actually by becoming holy, you become more beautiful. I want to show you that holiness is much more beautiful than you realize. And I think the final reason we need to look at this is because holiness is essential to the character of the church. Matthew 5, uh, Jesus says, you, this is talking to Christians, says, uh, who are his disciples, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything for, except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Saying if salt loses its distinctive taste, it is worthless. A little bit, it just becomes like white grit, like good for no, no purpose at all. Saying actually the church, in its essence, must hold on, must maintain, must grow in this kind of distinctive holiness. Because if the church loses this, what is it? You know, if the church just looks like everybody else, then they're not, they're not really exiles anymore. They've become, become part of the, the nation that they inhabit. So Peter is using, as we look at this passage, Peter's using something of the grand narrative of the Christian life. He talks about where they've come from. He talks about who they are now, and he talks about where they're going. And I want to use that framework to unpack this vision of what it means to live in distinctive holiness. So first of all then, Leave behind your old ways. Leave behind your old ways. Now, holiness is more than sin avoidance, and we're going to come on to that. But at the very least, 
Peter is calling the disciples, calling the Christians, calling us, calling you, to a, a kind of rejection of their old ways, a rejection of the, and what he describes in verse 14, he says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. He's saying, Peter's saying, do not let your lives be shaped by sinful desires. He's not surprised that you're going to have these desires. He wouldn't need to say this instruction if you, weren't, if you didn't experience these desires. So the presence of these desires is not the problem. The problem is when you allow them to shape your life. He's saying don't allow uh, sexual desire, lust, for anybody who's not your wife or husband to to, uh, shape your life. Don't allow pride, the desire for uh, glorification of the self, the desire for status and and adulation. Don't allow that to shape your life, to inform or shape your decisions. Don't allow that to to flourish in your life or, or the desire for... Um, the love of money, the desire for wealth. Don't allow the love of money to uh, shape your decisions. Saying, do not be conformed to these sinful desires. Peter's saying, don't tolerate them. Cut them off. Say no to them. I think this has implications for you if you're not a Christian and if you're a Christian. First of all, if you're not a Christian. If you're not a Christian, you've probably assumed that this call to holiness um, means losing your freedom. Right? You think... Uh, holiness means obedience to God, therefore I'm going to have to kind of lay down my freedom. I'm, I'm currently in control of my life. I decide what's right and wrong for myself. I decide what's good or evil. And so becoming a Christian would mean laying down my freedom. But I would suggest that this description here that Peter's giving tells you that you're not as free as you think you are. You're not as free as you think you are. This language of being conformed uh, it describes a kind of external pressure on you. He says you may feel free, but actually your life is being conformed to the desires that are bubbling up within you. You can see this in extreme cases. You can see the, the man who set his heart on success, and success has become the driving desire of his life, that everything becomes conformed to that desire. He loses friendships. He, he gives up his free time, all for that desire for success. You see this when uh, sometimes people are, are kind of so consumed by sexual desire that it leads them to make all sorts of wrong choices. Like they, they might um, commit adultery and end up losing their marriage and their relationship with their family and all sorts of things because they've allowed sexual desire to kind of rule their lives. You see it in extreme cases, but actually the Bible uses this language to describe everyone. It talks about slavery to sin. It talks about the way that actually your desires in some way control you. You think you're free... But actually, you are being controlled by the things that you desire. Uh, Bob Dylan uh, famously wrote the song, You're going to have to serve somebody. The only question is, who are you going to serve? Are you going to serve all these desires, some good, some bad, some healthy, some deeply unhealthy? Are you going to allow those desires to control you? Or are you going instead to, to experience the freedom that the living God offers? See that, and we talked about this, we'll see this later. He uses the language of, um, of liberation, of being ransomed. He's saying, actually, the living God is offering you an opportunity to come and walk with him and experience freedom, the freedom of obedience, the freedom of knowing what's right and wrong, and the freedom of walking in his ways, that you're not controlled by those old desires. Ultimately, are you going to follow those desires, or are you going to follow the living God who loves you and knows what's best for you? That's the question for you. But if you're a Christian, I think this has implications too. It says, don't you realize you've been set free from these empty ways? In verse 18, uh, 
he says, and knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. That word ransom is like um, someone, ha- you know, if you pay a ransom for hostages, like you've got hostages and you pay some money and then they're freed. Similarly, in Roman times, you could uh, pay money and you'd redeem, the, uh, you'd bring a, uh, a slave into freedom. You'd pay for their freedom. That's the language that Peter's using to describe, saying you have been set free. You've been liberated from these old ways, from these futile ways. He's saying you've been, you've been set free. Why would you then go and submit yourself to slavery again? Like a, a man who's been released from prison, is the shackles have come off, is walking in freedom, and then voluntarily goes back into prison and submits himself to slavery, to submits himself to incarceration again. Do you notice that word futile? Futile uh, really can also be translated kind of empty, saying, why would you, you've been liberated from these empty ways. If you're a Christian, he's saying, don't you realize that sin is empty? Don't you realize that those desires, those sinful desires that you all experience, to follow those would actually just lead to emptiness? Think about uh, that sexual high that you are pursuing, but actually it just fades quickly. That, that desire for success, that you get one achievement, you've, you've made it, you were pursuing that for so long, and soon enough, that, 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 that feeling of, 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 of privilege and joy or whatever you have when you've got that success fades, and you think, okay, what's the next thing, and the next thing, and the next thing? Or that extra money that you, uh, that you set your heart on, that you think, oh, I just really need some more money. I really need to get this, this pay rise and to be here. And then suddenly, quite quickly in your life, you realize you're spending that money and it hasn't really changed your happiness, hasn't really changed anything, and, you, and you're still wanting more. Uh, Rockefeller, uh, one that was once the richest man in the world, they said, how much money is enough? He said, just one more dollar. If you're a Christian, saying, don't you realize you've been ransomed, you've been liberated from these ways that are empty, that, are, that will not bring the fulfillment and satisfaction that you think they will? And they belong to your former life. They belong to your former ignorance, a time when you, when you didn't know better. Now you know better. Why go back to them? Don't you realize? Interestingly, I think what Peter's describing here is not just um, responding to the desires inside yourself. He's also talking about being conformed to the culture that you're in. He says uh, in verse 18, the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, inherited from your forefathers, He's saying, actually, there are, there are ways which you've inherited that you're a part of the culture that you're in. He's saying, you've been liberated from those ways too. He's saying, don't just don't, uh, turn away, not just from the desires inside you, but also from the empty ways of your culture, instead walking God's ways. Of course, it's using the word forefathers. It might not be that, that literally you're, you're following your parents, but we're all a product of the culture that we're in. We're all being shaped by, by some of those ways that Peter describes here. And really what I'm speaking to is the reality that holiness, the distinctive holiness that Peter is describing here, requires that you are prepared not to conform to the culture that you're in. Peter is calling them not to conform. Being a holy exile requires a willingness to be, um, not to become like the culture that you're in. But instead, walk and stand in this holy distinctiveness, even if everyone around you thinks it's crazy. Now, of course, I know that the pressure to conform is so strong. All of us experience that pressure, that desire to fit in. Um, in fact, every minority culture, uh, when they're in, they're in a majority culture, experiences that pressure. 
I don't know if Yorkaba, Yorkaba hasn't given me permission to share this, but I'm sure she's fine. Um, she uh, was telling me about, she's second generation uh, Ethiopian Eritrean heritage, and she said when she was growing up, her parents were like, kind of could see the fact that she was becoming more British, like she was adopting the British culture, and they're in one culture, and they're observing it. It's almost, it's almost um, going to happen if you're part of a culture, if you're growing up in a majority culture, that if you're the minority there, that you're going to, by, by nature, just start adopting the ways of the culture that you're in. But more than that, we all want to be liked. We all want to fit in. We don't like the idea of being different, of being an outsider. That doesn't feel nice. We don't want people to think that we're weird. I mean, conformity feels safe, doesn't it? Like some of you grew up and thinking, if I wasn't sure quite what to do, I did what everyone else was doing. That's, that's pretty normal. That's part of human nature almost. Many of you have grown up with the assumption that you can't go too far wrong when you follow the norms of the culture and the people around you. But Peter is saying the exact opposite of that. He's saying, actually, you've been liberated from these empty ways. Now don't conform to the pattern of your culture. He starts with the assumption that you will be different. So you need to settle within yourself that you're okay being an outsider to this culture. That you're not going to fit in perfectly with the people around you. There will be elements of this cultural moment that clash with your faith. And that will be true in every culture. Different things will clash with your faith in different cultures. But in every culture, the Christian faith will have uh, kind of clashing points, so to speak. We start with the assumption that following Jesus is going to go against the grain. Someone, one uh, writer described it as like, are you going to be a dolphin or a jellyfish? Dolphins run against the current. They, they're able to swim against the current. Jellyfish, they just float around, being pushed around by the current. Uh, wherever the current goes, the jellyfish follows. Saying Christians are dolphins. They're not swept around by the tides of their culture. They're able to go uh, the direction that God's calling them. If you forgive the analogy, you know, the, later on, <laughs> I'll slightly adapt the analogy. Uh, it talks, in verse 23, it talks about the imperishable seed planted within them. The living and abiding word of God. The, the, the word of God is like a rudder on the ship. As the tides come, the word of God is steering you through that direction. Meaning they don't just follow the currents, but they're following this fixed agenda. They've submitted themselves to the word of God, to God's agenda. And I think you must settle this ahead of time. You're all going to come into situations in your, in your friendships. Maybe some of you are new to university. Some of you are new to workplaces. Uh, and, and there are going to be times where, where your value system clashes with the values of the people around you. And you need to be prepared for that and ready to stand your ground and to be courageous. If you're new to London, you're new to a workplace, are you ready, are you ready for the moment when your colleagues say, well, it's the, it's the way we do things around here. It's just natural. We just lie to our clients. That's normal. Are you ready to be like, well, I'm sorry, I can't lie? Or if you get to university, and, and, uh, and are, you gonna, are you going to be the one student who treats every other student with dignity and honor rather than um, isolating yourself into cliques and thinking that some students are better than other students? Are you ready to be different, to be distinctive in the context that you find on yourself? Are you ready for the moments when someone says, someone says to you, go on, everyone else is doing it? Are you ready to say no at that point? This is where your identity is so important. It's so important that you remember that you are a holy exile. So giving in to the culture is not part of who you've been made to be. And I would argue that nonconformism, this idea of not conforming to the culture you're in, is absolutely necessary if you are to have any positive influence on the world. If you're willing to stand and resist the, current, the, cli- the currents of culture. 
Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a, a German pastor and theologian writer in Germany in the 1930s. And he saw what was happening. He saw that the way the, the Nazi party was seeking to uh, twist the doctrines of Christianity and set up a whole kind of basically false church where they, where they corrupted the doctrines of Christianity to, to somehow fit with Nazism and, and uh, the kind of German ideal that they were promoting at the time. Or, you know what I mean? The, um, the, the ideal of a, of a super race and things like that. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer was not swayed by those forces in his culture. Of course, in hindsight, it would be easy to say, well, he made the right decision. He, he resisted it. He part of the part of the kind of underground church, and he was uh, speaking out against the regime. Ultimately, to the point when in uh, 1945, he was, he was imprisoned and ultimately killed for his resistance. It's very easy in hindsight to look at him and say, well done, Dietrich, you made the right choice. But if you're in that moment, if when everyone around you is giving in, everyone else is just saying, well, it's okay, we can just adapt things slightly. It would be so easy to say yes to that. He said no. One other really important point from Dietrich's life um, is that separation from, from, from the ways of the world doesn't mean rejecting your culture. Dietrich Bonhoeffer showed an absolute love for his people. And in no way, when he rejected what was going on, did he reject his people. In, in the late 1930s, 1939, he went to America. And he um, was offered a, offered a position in a, in a uh, pastor's training theology college thing. Um, and, uh, and he took the job. But then quite quickly he realized it was the wrong decision because he, he felt such a, a desire and a calling to his own people. And this is what he said in a letter to his friend. He said, I will have no right to participate in the reconstruction of Christian life in Germany after the war if I do not share the trials of this time with my people. Christians, Christians in Germany will have to face the terrible alternative of either willing the defeat of their nation in order that Christian civilization may survive or willing the victory of their nation and thereby destroying civilization. I know which of these alternatives I must choose, but I cannot make that choice from security. So he went back to Germany and ultimately which led to his death a few years later. What's fascinating there is that this idea of, of, of marching to a different drumbeat does not mean a rejection of your culture. He said, no, actually, I'm called to love my people. You know, these, these exiles, they are, they are marching to a different beat, but they're inside the culture that they're in. They're immersed in it, loving, the brother, loving all the people around them. And he can't hold himself back from that. So it's essential that we hear that Peter's words here are not calling us to reject the people around us, just the ways that don't conform to Christ's will. We're not called to live in a Christian ghetto. So holiness begins with a rejection of these old ways, of the, of, the, of the sinful desires within you and the ways of our culture and a willingness to walk in holy distinctiveness. That's the first thing. Let's move to the second. Embrace your holiness. Embrace your holiness. Peter's vision of holiness is much more than just um, a rejection of your old ways, a rejection of these desires within you that don't conform to God's will. It's also a matter of who you are. Peter is speaking directly to their identity. In verse uh, 14, he describes them, it's written here as obedient children, but actually, literally, it's translated as children of obedience. He's saying, actually, you've become children of obedience. You've become a people marked by a new character by this holy obedience. It's not simply a command to be obedient, but a reminder that their character and nature has changed now that they follow Christ. 
earlier on, at the beginning of 1 Peter, he talks about the idea that they've been born again. At their salvation, they died to their old lives and have been given a new life in Christ. They've become a new person. The old man has gone. The new, ha- is ma- uh, the new man is here. In 2 Corinthians 5, it says, this means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. This is saying that becoming a Christian is much more than just uh, dropping a few things and maybe pay- taking up a few spiritual habits. It's about a total transformation of who you are. But it's not a transformation that you need to just kind of grasp at and do yourself. Actually, it's a transformation that has been started in you. That you've been given new life. You're now a child of the, whole, of the living God. Of course, that means that you have a new relationship with him, the new um, privilege of calling out to God as father. But it also means that you are now marked by a family resemblance. Family resemblance is a real thing. Some of you growing up are starting to lament the fact that you can see that you're like your parents, whether you want to, want to be like your parents or not. You are like them. Um, Jen sometimes complains to me about Caleb. She says, he's very in-your-face, uh, energetic. He never gives me any space. He has no sense of personal space. He's uh, an extrovert, and he chews everything. And I'm like, well, I'm sorry. He's my son. <laughs> All those things are true of me. Therefore, he ch- therefore, they're true of him. We can't run against biology. Fortunately for all of you, the family resemblance you have is not towards me, but to the living God. As you grow in Christ, you have become a child of God, just in the same way that Caleb is growing to look look like his father. So you will grow to look like your heavenly father. That's an absolute privilege. This is why Peter can say to them in verse 15, but as he who called you is holy, as, as the living God is holy, so you also... You also be holy in all your conduct. He can encourage them to be holy because of their status as children of God. So that means if you're not a Christian here and you're saying, what is all this? I could never imagine the lifestyle that they're talking about and what they're, what they're calling me to. That is true. If you're not a Christian, you can't just try and adopt the ways of Christianity and say, I can basically be a good person. I don't have to follow Jesus. I just start to do all the moral stuff. As, other, as people have tried throughout history, he's saying you can never do what Peter's describing here unless you become a child of the living God. It means holiness is part of your identity. It's part of your new nature. And I think it's essential that you remember this in your battle against sin. When sin comes knocking, you can say, no, that belongs in my old life. I'm a new person now. I'm part of the holy people of God. This sin, this desire that, that felt so normal and, 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 and right before, it's not part of who I am anymore. That's part of my old life. That's gone. That's dead. I'm part of the holy people of God now. It's easy to feel defeated by your sin. It's easy to feel like just a sense of, I'm totally sinful. I look, oh, my sin is ever before me. I can't, I, my life is just a mess. I think this truth is so important to remember when you feel like that. To say, no, actually, I've been made part of the holy people of God. And as much as I see sin in my life, that's, that sin is not who I am. That's not ultimately what God says about me. He says, I've made you part of the holy people of God because of what Christ did on the cross. Nothing you could ever make yourself, you couldn't make yourself holy like this. Actually, you've received a holiness from God. Yes, you still sin, but that sin is, not fun, is fundamentally not who you are. And this speaks to the idea that holiness is imitation. It should reorientate our understanding of holiness. It's not just saying no to big sins. Actually, it's becoming more like the person of Christ. 
in some small way like the living God. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that a privilege that you would become like the living God? That you would start to look like him? This is at the heart of what holiness is. This is why humility, walking in humility is holiness. Because we worship the living God who is willing to, uh, Jesus Christ was willing to uh, lay aside his majesty and instead uh, stoop low, take on flesh. Ultimately stoop so low that he was willing to be humiliated on, uh, and on the cross to die a death of a criminal with shame. That he, took, that he had that humility and that willingness to do that. That's why humility is part of what it means to be holy. We, that's why Paul says in his letter to the Philippians, be imitators of Christ, and then goes on to describe that. Saying, walk in the manner of, the, of your older brother, Christ. That's why sacrificial love is a key part of what holiness is. Because we worship a living God who was willing to sacrifice his life for us out of his love for us. So you can't say you're holy and not love others. You can't aspire towards a holiness, but not love your brothers and sisters, not actually love the people around you, love your neighbor. That's why Peter goes on in this passage later on to talk about um, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Earnestly, deeply. You can't say you're walking in holiness unless you love your brothers and sisters. That's why walking in purity and honesty and integrity, why those things are so important and part of holiness. Because we worship a faithful, perfect, pure, righteous God who has no deceit in him. This is why holiness is so beautiful and why learning to imitate the living God is an incredible privilege. Learning to become holy like the holy God that we worship. When you understand this, you realize that holiness is not vanilla, it's not boring, it's not unattractive, it's the most attractive thing in the world because you're carrying something of the beauty of Christ. And this kind of imitation doesn't come naturally to us. It requires a childlike humility. Think about the way a, a young child observes their parents and just ends up doing whatever they, do, whatever they see them doing. Recently, um, Jen told me that Caleb started lying down in public places when he feels tired. And I, I realized that I was the cause of this because sometimes um, Jen goes swimming in the morning and I look after him and, uh, before work and uh, I'm just a bit tired, so I close the door in his bedroom. I just lie down with him. He like reading things around me. But you know, basically, I've modeled to him that it's normal to just lie down wherever you want, whenever you want to sleep. <laughs> I'm not sleeping. I'm, I'm just, you know, um, <laughs> just lying down. But, and so he's learned that that's appropriate. Um, and, and I'm sure some of you as parents will have had to think more about some of the things you're modeling to your kids. The point is, this kind of imitation requires that childlike trust in your, in your father, a willingness to say, I want to, I want to watch you and observe you, and I want to become like you. I think this, is, this will involve laying down really significant parts of your life that you, maybe things that are really precious to you, parts of your character that you say, that's who I am. Actually, holiness means a willingness to be changed in the most profound ways. Before I was a Christian, I um, didn't really, I wouldn't say I really cared about people. I was a very ambitious person, very driven towards success. And um, I ran a business at university. And when I first met my, uh, one, two, one of the two people I was going to start this business with, um, I just thought she wasn't that innovative, wasn't that exciting. I said, passenger in life, move on. Like, you're not, <laughs> you're not, you're not going to help me. I just used to see people through the lens of like, if you help me to achieve my goals and my success, I would be interested in you. If you don't, then thank you very much, but goodbye. And... <laughs> And that's just a, a small insight into the brokenness of who I was, and, and in some ways. But anyway, the point is, um, I'm a pastor now. 
like 12 years later, I am shocked about how God has grown me and changed me and, and, and given me a love for people, a compassion for people, as something that, he, that he's doing and shaping. Because I can honestly say I didn't have that before. Something that would have been very cl- a big part of my character, I had to lay down, and God has been shaping me. So I just think you need to be prepared for big change. And really what we're talking about is imitating Christ in every part of your life. This vision of holiness may not sound very radical. It may not sound very profound. But I suggest that if you were to actually take this at its word, if you were to actually do this in every part of your life, that you would stick out like a sore thumb. In your work, in your, in your friendships, in your relationships, in your family, even the way you relate to your neighbours. This kind of radical humility, this willingness to love others, this kind of integrity and honesty, it's not how our city works. Of course people have integrity and honesty if they're not Christians. Of course people love others. I'm not saying anything like that. But the, le- the holiness of the Lord that, we, that I'm describing is not how people operate in this city. So if you were just to start to imitate him in every context you're in, I think you will stick out like a sore thumb. And interestingly, this quote that Peter's using from Leviticus 19, in that passage, uh, be holy as I am holy, it talks about holiness in every part of their lives. It talks about how they treat their workers, how they treat the poor, how they treat the disabled, how they relate to each other in community. Holiness is never about some secluded little religious bubble and, and trying to becoming a better person in these, in these walls. Holiness is about imitating the living God in every context of your life. Think about what it would look like if you went to work on Monday and said, I want to honor everyone. I don't just want to, I don't want to laugh at that guy that everybody else laughs at. How would your colleagues react if they saw you emphasizing the contribution of others in your projects out of a humility rather than emphasizing your own contribution? How would your university mates react if you, said, if you intentionally went and uh, showed love to the person who everybody else has rejected and thought was an idiot? I'm convinced as we walk in holiness, as we image Christ to a lost and broken world, that that we will stick out and people will be asking, why are these people so different? I think that's what he's talking about uh, later on in 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 1 Peter 2, where he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. He's saying, they're going to speak against you as evildoers. They're going to see some of the things you do or believe and think that you're evil. They're then going to see other parts of your life. They're going to see good deeds. They're going to see your character. They're going to see you imitating the person of Christ. And what are they going to do? They're going to glorify God on the day of visitation. I mean, it sounds to me like they're going to become Christians. They're going to follow Christ. Because they see your good deeds. So never underestimate the power of you obeying Christ in this holiness and how that will have an impact on the people around you. They'll be asking, why are you so different? I see Christ in you. But this calling to holiness is not just shaped by a rejection of who you were, not just shaped by an embrace of who you are, but it's also shaped by a looking to the future. I want to briefly talk to you about that for my third point. Remember your future hope. Remember your future hope. Peter's vision of distinctive holiness is driven and shaped by their vision of the future. They are a people in exile, but they're shaped by where they're from, where they're going to, but ultimately where they belong. If you're in exile, if you move to this city, if someone moves down, uh, down to our uh, ground floor flat in, in the Cali Estate uh, on, on the Brixton Road, I'll give you the address later. Um, <laughs> if, they, um, if they move to the bottom of the flat, and uh, it's not particularly that interesting that they've come to move to that flat. 
If you tell me you know, the country they're from, that's really going to tell me a bit more about who, who they are. You're shaped by where you're from, not where you are. So Christians who are exiles from the heaven are shaped by their reality of where they're going to. Means we f- and, and this is a few implications of this. One, we fix our focus on grace. In verse 13, he says, set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Christians are people who, are, who have put their hope on the grace that they will receive when they meet Christ face to face. What does this mean? It means that you're not weighed down by sin today. So as we talk about sin, as we talk about this call to holiness, it's very easy that you feel a sense of despair, a sense of um, your own sin. And, and there is a conviction from the Lord. But condemnation doesn't belong on the Christian. They're not meant to be walking, looking down, just going, woe is me, I'm such a terrible person. They're looking to the hope. They're looking to the grace that they've received. It means they're not, um, they don't feel tied down and weighed down by the weight of their sin. We don't despair. Some of you are walking under a strong sense of condemnation. One tip for you would just be learn, literally learn the words of Scripture that speak about the fact that because you're a follower of Christ, you've been forgiven. As far as the east is from the west, so far he's removed your transgressions from you. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you, forgive us our sins, and purify us from all unrighteousness. This is some of the things I've learned, that when I feel that condemnation, when I feel weighed down by sin, I remind myself of the truth that I've been washed clean by the blood of Christ. Learn these things so when condemnation comes knocking... You can speak back to it and say, no, I'm, I'm, I'm washed clean by the blood. If you're not a Christian, it's important that you hear this, that you get Christianity the right way up, so to speak. It's very easy to look at the Christian faith from the outside and say, basically, it's a group of people trying to be holy, trying to be good, and trying to make themselves right before the living God. And that's completely the wrong way around. Actually, it says, you've been washed clean by the blood of Christ. Christians are simply people who receive the forgiveness that God offers that have become children of God, and as such, start to walk in holiness. They're not trying to prove themselves to God. They've received a righteousness from Christ by the blood of the Lamb that was slain, as he, met, as he mentions in this passage. And so they are washed clean. So do not make the mistake of thinking Christianity is about you trying to imp- a self-improvement exercise. Instead, see it as a gift from the living God. Second of all, it means we walk in fear. Verse 17, Peter describes how we walk in fear throughout the time of our exile. Because we worship a father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. This is not the fear of judgment. Uh, what, what I mean by this, it's not the fear of losing your salvation. It can't be, because he's just talked about the grace they're going to receive. How they're going to be welcomed into the family of Christ. The family of God. It's not talking about that. It's talking about an anticipation of being held accountable for how you've lived your life. Christians are people who walk soberly with, in, in knowing that one day they will meet Christ and will in some way give an account for how they've lived their life. Even though they're going to receive salvation, that's not up for discussion. That's not, that's not in question if, you're, if you've received the blood of Christ. Still a case that, that your life will be weighed in some way. In 1 Corinthians 3, it talks about a man being saved as if escaping through fire. He's received salvation, but his life has been burned up and it's just been chaff, just been waste, useless. Saying, actually, no, you want to be living a kind of life that one day Jesus will say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. There's a sense of, of soberly walking in life, knowing that one day you'll be held accountable for how you've lived your life. Grace doesn't mean that it doesn't matter how you live now. And thirdly, and this is probably the most important point to end on, you walk with one eye on the future hope and the future heaven, the future home, because you know that this struggle will one day be over. Being an outsider is difficult. Being an outsider, being an exile, that's not easy. 
The struggle against sin is not easy. It's going to feel hard at times. And it's really important to remember that one day we're going to a place where there's no more suffering, no more crying, no more mourning, no more pain, and no more sin. That the, re- the, the flesh that we wrestle with today will one day be gone. That we'll be new creations standing before the Holy, Holy God for all eternity. What a privilege. What a thing to look forward to. Hallelujah. So as we conclude and the band come up, I want to suggest to you really that Peter has painted us a beautiful picture of what it means to be a holy exile. It means people who reject their old ways. It means that it, that it might be that the Holy Spirit, as we, as we worship or now, is putting his finger on parts of your life that you need to cut off. Things that you need to say, actually, no, that's not part of, the, of what it means to be a holy person of God. They're people who've decided they don't conform to this world. They've decided ahead of time that they are part of these holy exiles, even if people scorn you. They're people who've taken hold of the holiness that they've received and are seeking to imitate the living God in every part of their lives. And they're people who have their eyes fixed on the future grace, the grace that they've received that's washed them clean and the grace that they will receive when they meet Christ face to face. I want to end with one thought which is that holiness is consecration. Think about the idea in the temple, they would consecrate certain objects and they would say, this is dedicated to the Lord. This is set apart to him. This, temp- this table, this cup, whatever. Saying this is dedicated to God. That is what holiness is. It's about you saying to God, I want to give you everything of my life. I want to dedicate my whole life to you. I want to walk in your ways. I want to be your obedient servant. I want to be consecrated. I want to be set apart for you. Ultimately, holiness is about you laying down your life to the living God. If you're a Christian, that means as we worship now, as we take communion, it's an opportunity for you to consecrate yourself again. To say to the living God, I want you to have everything in my life. I want you to cut off old ways and I want to be your holy vessel in every part of my life. And and actually, this also speaks to you if you're not a Christian. It says the very essence of what it means to become a Christian is to give your life to God. To receive his forgiveness but ultimately to say, God, I want to be yours. I recognize that I'm yours because you made me. I was yours for the moment I was conceived, before I was conceived. But I want to be yours now. I want to live in line with the reality that I am yours. I want to give my life to you. That's what it means to become a Christian, to surrender everything and seek to be his disciple, to receive his forgiveness. And actually, as we, as we worship, you, you're very able to respond, just you and God, if you're not a Christian, just to say to him, God, I want you to have my whole life. I want to respond to you. I want you to be your holy vessel for all eternity. I want to receive the forgiveness that you offer. Come and wash me clean. And you can, you can respond right there and then. If that's you, we'd love to chat to you afterwards. So we're going to respond and worship here, but I want you guys to stay seated. And we're going to take communion, which is really a wonderful opportunity to remember that behind everything, behind all of this holiness, stands the holiness of Christ, willing to lay down his life. The perfect man who ever lived gave in his life for us. We've received a holiness from him. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you for the gift of holiness. I want to thank you that you have made us holy people of the living God. It's incredible for this holiness that we've received from you. Would you help us as we take communion now to consecrate our whole lives to you?
to remind ourselves, remind us. Maybe there are parts of our lives that don't match up to this, Lord. Would you help us to cut them off? But would you remind us that, that we are yours? Would you help us to give everything to you? Lord, we're going to sing heaven comes down on earth and we just want, we want that to be true in our lives, Lord. True that, that we would live a life that reflects the fact that our home is in heaven and not on this earth. Amen.